Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2011, with U.S.-Iran relations at a 30-year low, Iranian-American writer Human Majd decided to take his blonde, blue-eyed Midwestern wife Carrie and infant son Kash from their Brooklyn neighborhood to spend a year in the land of his birth. The Ministry of Guidance invites you to not stay, traces their domestic adventures, and tracks the political drama of a terrible year for Iran's government. The Green Movement had been crushed. The regime was on edge, anxious to lest democratic protests resurge. International sanctions were dragging down the economy while talk of war with the West grew. Human Maj was there for all of it. It was to be a year of discovery for him as well. He'd only lived in Iran as a child. And in his book, he uh, gives an account of life under an authoritarian regime that uh, offers insight into a country and its people, as well as a personal story of exile and the search for the meaning of home. Human Maj was born in Tehran in 1957, educated in the West. He's written about Iran for GQ, New York Times, New Yorker, New York Observer, and other publications. He was executive vice president at Island Records and head of film and music at Palm Pictures. He's contributing editor at Interview Magazine, lives in New York City. His previous books include The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, The Paradox of Modern Iran, and The Ayatollah's Democracy, an Iranian Challenge. Human Maj, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Uh, I wonder if you'd uh, tell people a little bit about your background. You are son of a diplomat who served under the Shah, grandson of an Correct. Ayatollah. Uh, and grandson of an Ayatollah, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. so, so that you, you kind of, in your background there, you, you encompass um, most of Both modern, sides modern of the run. political spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, but so, um, uh, I, I didn't grow up in Iran, so my contact with, um, with the side of my family, which was very religious, um, uh, wasn't very, I mean, I didn't have that much contact with him. Uh, so you, um, and you grew up, uh, I think, traveling around. Your father was a diplomat. Yeah, he was a diplomat under the Shah's regime, and so we moved around every three or four years, but uh, most of his postings back then, Iran was a, a smaller country population-wise and mm. um, uh, more of a developing country than it is today. And so the diplomatic corps was small, and anybody who spoke English tended to get posted to English-speaking countries. And, and so we ended up mostly in, in England and, and the U.S. San Francisco, I went to grade school in San Francisco, went to high school in England, um, college here. So um, mostly U.S., uh, but uh, a little bit in England, and a couple of years in India, where I went to the American school, and Tunisia, where I went to the American school. And then, of course, came the revolution, 1979. Uh, since your father's diplomat for the Shah, I expect you uh, he, he wouldn't have gone back. You, you would, at that point, been... Yes, yes. We were kind of uh, persona non grata at that point. For In the early years of the revolution, it was um, not a good idea for any of my family to, um, my immediate family anyway, to go back. I did have family there, cousins and people like that, who had actually, some of them were revolutionaries um, and, and ended up in, in government in Iran later on. But in the early days of the revolution, yes, we, we, we were kind of, um, it, was, it was a better idea not to go back. Uh, so we just stayed abroad. My, my father went into exile in England, and uh, I stayed in the U.S. Um, and uh, I've been here ever since. And, what and then started going back after ah. President Khatami's uh, election in Iran opened Iran up a little bit. Um, the political climate in Iran changed. There were um, the security atmosphere, the intelligence services, everything. They were much, much more relaxed about dual citizens, about American Iranians, Iranian Americans going back and forth. Uh, and that's when I got my passport back, my Iranian passport back, and started traveling to Iran. This is after a, a career in the music industry and film industry. 
That's correct. Yes, yes. Yeah. Prior to uh, uh, journalism, I was in the music business for a long time and a little bit in the film business. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And uh, um, I had I'd actually started writing when I was in, in college, um, but figured out that I couldn't make a living at it. So um, got sidetracked into the music business, which I enjoyed thoroughly. And as the music business was dying, um, the business as we knew it was dying, around the internet age, um, I decided to go back to writing and was fortunate enough to, to be able to uh, jump into it and do many articles for various magazines on all kinds of things, not just Iran, and even some style pieces for the New York Times and and other places. So uh, so, and then that just you know grew with uh, with the Iran stories that were um, Iran has been in the news for the last ten years at least, and you know um, at the top of the news for the last ten years, and uh, there was a tremendous amount of interest in it, and so I took advantage of the opportunity that I had as an Iranian to be able to go back and and visit and and write about the country and the politics. And uh, a little later in the program, I'll, I'll ask you about the current situation, the new agreement, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I'm sure people are, are interested. I'm wondering about the personal side of your decision to, to go back. I'm guessing you, 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 you know, you want to see family, etc., but is, is this a homecoming? You want to dive into the culture that you never really lived in, at least in, the, in your home exactly. country? I mean, you, I mean you're, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. I mean, in, in a way, and as a journalist going to Iran um, over these past few years, um, spending a week here, two weeks there, even as much as a month to write my first book, for example, I still felt I was a, a visitor. Uh, and I wasn't living as an Iranian, and since I'd never experienced that as a, as a, as a, even as a child, except for when I was an infant, um, I thought that I really should try to to, to live as an Iranian um, in the country of my birth and see what that feels like. Not only what see feels what see what it feels like, also get a better understanding of what it is Iranians go through um, and what their desires are, what their what what they want from life, um, and how they have to survive. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect was that, you know, as an exile, you always feel, even though I'd grown up in the West, it was this, this concept of where home is was always, to me, somewhat ambiguous, because even as a child, when people ask where I was from, I'd say Iran, but it didn't really mean very much to me, because I never lived there properly. So to say I'm from Iran, it was my heritage was Iranian, but I didn't really know Iran. I didn't really know the people very well. Uh, didn't know the I knew the culture through my parents and, and the Iranian culture we had at home. But uh, I was kind of like looking for my roots in a way. It sounds cliched, but I think that's something that uh, most Americans um, can relate to in a way. Um, you know, at least Americans who have, uh, you know, recent immigrant Americans or at least the first generation or second generation Americans can relate to. I mean, you know, my friends, if you ask them where they're from, everybody would say, oh, I'm from California or I'm from Texas or I'm from Minnesota or Utah or wherever. And for me, I mean, that, that even if they didn't like their home, there was something or they escaped their home. Even today, if you talk to people in New York where they're from, they're from all over the place and they may not even like where they're from. But it is a home. There is a sense of home. And that sense for me never existed. You know, where is home? I don't know where home. Home is wherever my bags are. Mm. Um, and I thought that it would be an interesting experience for me um, to, to do that. And I also felt that at, with, the, with the, a newborn son, uh, I should do it early on because before school and other obligations take over. And I can't do it. Uh, um, and it becomes physically impossible to, to um, or practically impossible to move my family to Iran for a year. Um, so that was the that was the reason. So uh, how did that <laughs> how the conversation go with your with, with your wife? You, you have an infant son. We're yeah. we're, we're going to go to Iran for a year, and, and uh, you know there might be dangers. It's it's an authoritarian regime. 
Um, yeah. You know, not as harsh as some, but uh, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so well, I and, think my wife had always had curiosity about Iran. I mean, you marry an Iranian American, um, and you're always going to have curiosity about where they're from, um, and curiosity about the country. And in the years that I've been traveling back and forth, uh, she always used to say, "Well, I'd like to, you know, come there one day and see it." So it wasn't that big of a, a deal for her in terms of committing, and 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 certainly um, with a child, it was. You know, I, I think she she knew enough about Iran to know that if there was any danger, the danger was going to be for me more than for her or for her child. Um, but she was willing to take that risk along with me, and in, in some ways preferred to be there with me if there was going to be a danger, rather than be stuck in New York while I'm dealing with some you know personal problem in in Iran. Um, so it wasn't you know, and, and she's she's got a good sense of adventure, and it's like okay, well, if not for the rest of our lives, let's go and see what it's like. This should, this could be this could be something very fascinating and interesting, uh, an interesting experience for 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 all of us. So um, she wasn't that reluctant. She was a little nervous, I would say, as anybody should be, or 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 would be, uh, with a country that uh, doesn't get great press in America. <laughs> but um, but no, it wasn't that difficult to to persuade her. And the adventure begins uh, just trying to get permission to go to Iran, right? You, and and one sticking point is is your son. And uh, I think at the time you and, and Carrie were not married, at least. Yes, when, when, he was, when he was conceived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I mean, you know, to, to go to theoretically, I could have tried to get um, uh, my wife and my child uh, visas to go to Iran uh, as American citizens, um, but that is is frowned upon if you're. If you're born to an Iranian father, and if you're married to an Iranian, if you're a woman and you're married to an Iranian, you're automatically considered Iranian citizen. So you have to get Iranian passports. Uh, the snag is that if you're if you want to get an Iranian passport for your wife, you have to um, she has to become convert to Islam, which is a very simple thing. It takes like two minutes to convert. All you have to do is say, "I believe in Muhammad as a prophet," you know, it's, and, as the last prophet, and uh, you know, you're a Muslim, and then you get your passport right away. With my son, there were some questions about, like, well, you know, um, your marriage certificate says you were married, you know, one month before your child was born. Well, is your child adopted? Is your child, you know, and all the, all those kinds of questions that were that were raised. But in the end, it worked out fine, and they, we got our passports, and, and my wife and child got um, their Iranian passports, and we went on Iranian passports to Iran, because that's the only way that you could actually live there. If you're, if you're going as a tourist, you'll get a tourist visa, and you have to leave after a certain time period when the visa's up. And you, to go as a journalist is a whole other question and, and a whole other issue, and complicated and um, difficult to get journalist visas. And they won't give me, actually, a journalist. They haven't given me a journalist press pass since 2009. Hmm. So I just have to go as a, as a ordinary citizen. Is that because they don't like what you're writing? I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or they haven't liked what I've write, written. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now you're. I think this is is it. This is the airport. You're met by some uh, security people who show you a thick file. On it's you. It's not at the airport. It's not okay. at the airport. I'm. I, I, I'm told to go to a uh, yes to an office in 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 downtown Tehran to uh, to to meet with security officials who uh, who are going to question me. That's that's before I actually moved to Iran with. Uh, about a couple of months or a month before I moved to Iran with my family, um, and yes, they I've been questioned and interrogated uh, on, on on a number of occasions, but that was uh, one of the one of the occasions right before I was going to move to Iran. Hmm. And uh, you you say you didn't tell your wife. No, I felt it better. I thought it better not to because that kind of would have been would have been mm-hmm. something. I mean, I wasn't overly concerned. Um, you know, been, being interrogated is something that's pretty normal with people in Iran who are in any way public figures or have been, uh, or writers or have been 
journalist or have been involved in any kind of activities, uh, political activities. So um, it, it's, it wasn't that unusual. But if uh, if I brought that up with my family, we, even my my parents, um, uh, they would have been shocked and been like, "Well, you clearly you can't go to Iran because they're gonna." At one point, they could arrest you and uh, throw you in jail. So I thought it better not to bring it up. How how nervous do you feel? Should you feel? How dangerous is it? I, I noticed later in the book you you talk with a with a friend who's who's out of prison and yeah. he's he's very shaken by the experience, as you would imagine. There you know, there's crackdown on dissent. Yes. I mean, nervous, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, for someone who's an Iranian citizen and has to abide by the laws of the Islamic Republic and is, is considered an Iranian citizen, not an American citizen when I'm there, um, yes, there, there's a certain amount of nervousness because there's an unpredictability. Um, I think since the election of uh, Hassan Rouhani, the new president in Iran, um, this past summer, I think things have changed in that regard quite a bit. I've been there once uh, since, uh, twice actually, since the election of, of the new president, once, both times with NBC News. Um, and, um, you know, things have changed. There's definitely a much more relaxed atmosphere. I shouldn't say much more, but a more relaxed atmosphere. There still are political prisoners, and there's still, you know, a lot of issues, uh, domestic political issues in Iran, and there's been a focus on the nuclear issue on the part of this government. But um, it's, it's changed a little bit. I think the nervousness that a lot of Iranians had since 2009, um, particularly since 2009, uh, has dissipated somewhat with this new government um, that is trying to, to make it uh, less of a security state, a uh, state run by the security services. So I think uh, it's going to take a while, but, um, but you know, I think we can be a little bit less nervous about it. And, and we can see even from American journalists now who are getting visas to go, uh, many of them couldn't go because they hadn't been able to get a visa for the last uh, five years. Um, so, you know, American journalists are going and uh, even tourists are now going and are lining up to go to Iran with this new government in place in Iran and the potential for detente with the U.S. So I think things have changed and I think the, um, the nervousness level has come down quite a bit. We're talking with Human Majd, who uh, in 2011, with U.S.-Iran relations at a 30-year low, um, he decided to take his uh, wife and infant son from their Brooklyn neighborhood and spend a year in the land of his birth. And the resulting book is The Ministry of Guidance Invites You to Not Stay. One of his goals, as he uh, outlines it in the book, is to uh, let us know, uh, have us learn uh, how Iranians live in Iran. He wanted to know that for himself. He'd uh, lived abroad for, for most of his life, been born in, in Iran, but uh, lived abroad for most of his life. Uh, and uh, this is a very timely book, of course. We'll get to talking about uh, relations between Iran and the U.S. and uh, Iran's nuclear ambitions and prospects uh, for democracy in Iran. We'll also talk about uh, some of the experiences. Uh, his wife carries uh, run-ins with the modesty police, for example, uh, finding a bootlegger in uh, Tehran. And much more. We'll get into talking about Persian culture. Very, very interesting, including uh, I'm interested to uh, learn about uh, their obsession, apparently, with children. Uh, more following the break. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. How do you know if it's safe to go outside when PM2 levels are elevated? The cause of our unhealthy air is particulate pollution that is 2.5 micrograms or smaller. Often you'll hear this called PM2.5. 
While it's still okay for most people to go outside on these days, everyone is different and health decisions should be made on actual pollution levels and individual sensitivity. For those who are more vulnerable to air pollution, such as children, those with asthma, heart or lung conditions, or the elderly, care should be taken to stay indoors. Reducing outside activity when pollution reaches high levels will reduce short-term health effects. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our Community Engagement Reporting Project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, we're getting a glimpse inside Iran on the program today. Very timely topic with a new nuclear agreement and the prospects in uh, getting that through Congress. Um, uh, also uh, opening up, it seems, of relationships, or at least an, a, a possibility for detente between Iran and the U.S. with uh, the new president being elected. He's uh, reached out to the U.S. And we're talking with Iranian-American Human Majd, who in 2011, with U.S.-Iran relations at a 30-year low, decided to take his blonde, blue-eyed Midwestern wife Carrie and infant son Kosh from their Brooklyn neighborhood to spend a year in the land of his birth. He's the son of a diplomat under the Shah and grandson of an Ayatollah. He'd lived abroad, though, for most of his life after having been born in Tehran. And uh, this is a personal journey for him as well, um, learning about the land of his birth. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. There's a picture of Mr. Majd there. Uh, Disability Law Center has liked that post. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Mr. Majd, I was very interested in learning about Iranian culture, really Persian culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see, I'm, I'm reading here. This is this is uh, where you describe a meeting with uh, former President Hatami. Yeah. And uh, he's talking about the, the fact that uh, he sees that uh, he wants democracy. He says, we've always wanted freedom, democracy, human rights, and so on, but we've never instituted the culture for them. And then you talk about um, this culture as uh, being one of beauty, poetry, hospitality, and manners, yet still very much formed by Shia Islam, mournful, strict, and austere. I wonder if you could expand on that. Tell us about the, the culture. Well, the, I mean, I, President Khatami was, was, was speaking mostly about the political culture um, and that they haven't created a political culture. Uh, or haven't developed the political culture for democracy, even though there's a great demand for democracy. And, and part of that is because Iranians haven't experienced democracy. Whenever they've experienced it for very short periods of time, whether it was in 1906 with the Constitutional Revolution, or in 1953 with uh, Mossadegh, the Prime Minister, um, it's been taken away from them very quickly. Um, and the Islamic Republic was supposed to uh, institute a democracy, and there have been attempts within the Islamic Republic to bring a form of Islamic democracy, at least, and uh, those have been stifled, whether it was, and the most obviously recent example was in 2009 in the protest movement, um, so the Green, the Green Movement. And then you have this, obviously, very religious country, um, uh, very pious country. Uh, sure, you know, in big cities like Tehran, you have a lot of secularists, and you have people who don't follow the, the faith. But Iran is, on, on the whole, with a population of 80 million 
people, quite a religious country. In some ways, like America is quite a religious country. Um, we may not always, uh, we may sin, we may not abide by religious dictates, but uh, we are a religious country. Um, and, and Iran is probably more so a religious country, and, and a Shia Islamic religious country. And how you, how you sort of um, meld those two things, democracy and, and, and Shia, the Shia religion, the Shia faith, um, is, is still a, a lingering question for, for politicians and certainly for the reform politicians. The most strict um, uh, religious uh, politicians in Iran are, are believe, well, you know, as long as it's got to be, you know, a sort of dictatorship of, of the clergy because uh, they know best, they know the religion, um, and, they, and, and, and Islamic law has to prevail everywhere. And then you've got the more reform-minded people who say, well, wait a sec, that's not the way it really should be. I mean, religion should be something private. Um, there can be a religious sense of, of the nation. Uh, there can be some standards and some morals that we adhere to and we expect our citizens to adhere to, but there should be a democracy that allows people to make their own choices and uh, to elect their own leaders and elect their own government. So, um, you know, they, you know the religious... The religious culture is one culture. Um, it is definitely intertwined with the, the Persian culture, um, as much as the secularists would like to deny that because they want to say that, uh, <laughs> that, that Islam has nothing to do with Persian culture. But given that Shia Islam has been around for 500 years in Iran, and Islam has been around for 1,400 years in Iran, or 1,300 years in Iran, um, the culture has been affected by it. It is, it is an Islamic culture. Uh, it has some unique Persian aspects to it that are unlike other Islamic countries, particularly Arab countries, but it is an Islamic culture. So uh, would you say the, the vast majority of the people support the Islamic Republic? In other words, the Arab Spring will not be sweeping through Iran? I wouldn't say that the vast majority support the republic. I think the, um, the Arab Spring will not be, no, that definitely will not be happening anytime soon. Most people in Iran do not want a revolution. They do want reform. They do want change. They want evolution um, and not revolution. They certainly don't want to see what's happened in, in Egypt happened to Iran, what's happened in um, Syria, for sure. They don't want to see a civil war like that. Um, and I think they just would like some, some gradual, peaceful change. Uh, when I say gradual, some people want it faster than others. But um, that's why there was such excitement uh, in Iran this past uh, summer for the election of Rouhani, who promised this this sort of change that was going to come, but um, he also said it was going to be gradual. So I think Iranians accepted that, um, that, it, that it can't be overnight. Uh, overnight change sometimes leads to things that they, they don't expect or don't want. Um, we have to remember that Iran went through a major revolution, a, you know, something that just turned their world upside down uh, only 35 years ago. Um, now, that may sound like a long time ago, but, you know, if, if this generation of young Iranians don't remember it, their parents do. Um, and they do know that the promises of a revolution sometimes aren't kept. Um, so what they really want is to see some real change, real democracy, or real democratic change in Iran without the upheaval of a revolution or the upheaval of a, um, of a civil war or anything like that. Um, but to say that the majority support, it's, it's hard to say. We don't have you know, hard numbers, but I would say the majority of people in Iran support change, um, whether it's economic change or, or democratic change because uh, some people are only concerned with economics, the pocketbook, as, as people are everywhere in the world. Um, and, and others want some rather dr drastic changes, even in the Constitution. But in terms of overthrowing the Islamic Republic as it is today, no, I would say that's not a popular sentiment. What's, uh, what's the view of the man on the street, would you think, toward uh, nuclear ambitions 
for Iran. Supportive of that? Yeah. I mean, I would think overall, yes. I mean, every poll has indicated that, uh, you know, reliable scientific polls has indicated that. If you talk to people in Iran, they are generally supportive. Um, there's a price that they're not willing to pay, I'm sure, uh, at some point, or at least some people are not willing to pay. But I think Iranians, having experienced in the past being under the thumb of, uh, of the greater power, whether it's Russia 100 years ago or Great Britain 70 years ago and then, um, or 80 years ago, and then, uh, and then after World War II, the U.S., and, and being dictated to by foreign powers, I think Iranians as a proud nation um, feel that they should be able to control their own destiny. And, and you know, the government's very, very smart in framing it like that. This is something about our national rights, about our dignity as a nation, a 5,000-year-old nation, a nation that was a, a state way before, a nation-state that existed, a multicultural nation-state that existed way before any other nation-state existed, when other countries were city-states, such as Rome or Athens. Um, and so, you know, that idea of pride and, and being able to, to, uh, to control your own destiny and being able to enjoy the same rights as other countries do. I think it plays a big part in this nuclear issue. And Iranians are like, why are we being dictated to? Why can't we have nuclear energy if, uh, if other countries have it? And then some people go even further and say, why can't we have who, who are they to tell us that we can't have nuclear weapons? If Pakistan has them, if Israel has them, if the U.S., Germany, I mean, not Germany, but U.S., uh, England, France has them, why can't we have them? So I think it is wrapped up in that in that pride issue, and and yes, it does it does have quite a bit of support. I would say vast majority of Iranians support Iran's um, nuclear program. How are sanctions viewed? Is there a backlash, emotional backlash against the West for for those? To, to, to some degree, yes. I mean, I think you know the the U.S. expected the backlash to be at least under Hillary Clinton at the time. The U.S. expected. Uh, backlash to be against the Iranian government and say, well, you're, you're the cause of this. But the Iranians don't look at it that way. The Iranians look at it as who, who is imposing the sanctions and why are they imposing the sanctions. They're trying to get their government, which they may not even like, to do something that is actually, you know, would be unpopular for Iran to give up, just, you know, surrender to the West. And so the sanctions that, and the sanctions that affect them personally, and they do affect every Iranian, are viewed as punitive sanctions. You're punishing a population for the deeds of the government that they may not even approve of. Um, so, yeah, the backlash has been much more uh, against uh, Western nations than it has been against uh, their own government. Um, and the government's been very good at its propaganda. And, and, and uh, the problem with the sanctions is that despite what uh, U.S. administration has said in the past, that it's not targeting uh, Iranian civilians, or ordinary people, it, it has that has been the net effect, and um, and so people are, are are certainly not happy with the with the sanctions regime at all. So how should the U.S. proceed if they don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons? Do you, do you support this uh, this latest agreement? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think the U.S. should proceed exactly as it is right now, exactly as the Obama administration is proceeding right now. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's very popular in Iran, this nuclear deal among the people. There are hardliners in Iran who disapprove. They don't think Iran should give an inch, just as there are neocons here in America who don't think America should give an inch. Um, but when you don't, when neither side gives an inch, then, then you've got stalemate and then you've got a potential for war, which nobody wants. So I think that, um, yes, this is this is the right move coming to a nuclear uh, interim nuclear agreement and saying we've got six months to a year to figure out if we can have a final deal which will satisfy u.s. concerns and western concerns that iran will not be able to build a nuclear weapon if they want to um, with their domestic 
program, and yet Iran can say, well, we have the same rights as everyone else. We have the right to peaceful nuclear energy. We are a signatory, along with many other nations, to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, where we've already pledged not to build or weaponize our nuclear program, but we have all the rights that every other nation has, too. So that, they can say, is a triumph, uh, present as a triumph to their peoples. Like, we stood up for our rights, we maintained our rights. And so I think, you know, this win-win is something that, that both sides are looking for. The Obama administration is looking for that, and I think the Iranian administration, this new administration, is looking for this sort of win-win. Both sides can proclaim a victory. If, if President Obama a year from now can stand up and say, you know, with, with additional inspections and the additional protocol that, uh, that Iran has signed and with the limitation on the number of centrifuges and the limitation on the, the level of enrichment, and we will have plenty of notice if they try to weaponize their program, well, we have resolved this nuclear issue. I think that will be a significant, significant uh, achievement for him and for the West. And the same for Iran, to say after 10 years of suffering through this nuclear crisis, for us to be able to say, this is what the Iranians would say, for us to be able to say that, yes, we have maintained our rights, we have the technology, we can be a, a developed nation with, with you know, current nuclear technology as well as any other technology, uh, along with every country in the world, I think that's an achievement for Iran as well. Do you think the Iranian government would indeed really give up uh, ambitions for nuclear weapons? It, it, and I think the, I guess the, the real person that you'd have to get inside his brain on is, is the supreme leader, right? Yes. I mean, you'd have to, you know, the question uh, assumes for a minute that they have that ambition right now. Um, which even according to U.S. intelligence, uh, they don't show that ambition. They're not showing that ambition for a nuclear weapon. Even John Kerry has said, you know, has, has brought up the issue of the fatwa, the religious decree against nuclear weapons. Now, it's also true that fatwas can be changed depending on circumstances. If, if the U.S. or Israel attacks Iran, certainly that fatwa will be reversed, and, and they will say, well, we now need nuclear weapons to defend ourselves because to, to prevent a future attack. So that's very likely to happen if, if, uh, if there's a military attack on Iran. But right now, in terms of ambitions, it's hard to read, like you say, getting in the heads of, head of a, uh, whether the Supreme Leader or any other Iranian uh, official at that level uh, or just below that level. It's hard to, to read. I think the assumption is on most people's part who study Iran, whether they're in government or outside of government at think tanks, and anybody who's observed Iran and, and knows some of these leaders is that they're not stupid. They know that if they have the technology to enrich uranium and, and other technologies that go along with nuclear weaponization, they could at one time, if they decide to build a weapon, have the technology to do so. I don't think that decision has been made, um, that we, we, we need to decide we need to have a weapon. Um, but I think they want to be in a position, um, and, and they like the advantage of being in that position, which they're actually in right now. So I think that's already, the, you know, we've passed that bar. Um, you, can't, you can't stop that, and you certainly can't bomb the knowledge out of them any, either. So there's no military solution at this point to the nuclear program, um, to Iran's nuclear program. And, in fact, if there were a military action against Iran, I mean, you'd have to kill a lot of Iranians to kill that knowledge. <laughs> you have to kill a lot of scientists to kill that knowledge. Um, and uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's possible at this point. So, you know, your question is a fair question, but I think that uh, if Iran sees the advantages, you know, Iran is not an irrational actor. Even the Israelis say they're not irrational. So if they see the advantages of being brought back into the world community, the economic advantages, the, 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 the advantages, the geopolitical advantages that come with being not an enemy of the U.S., not in conflict with the West, I think there's no reason for them to build a bomb. 
certainly, you know, anybody who wants to build a bomb is, is doing it for either defensive purposes, such as Israel did uh, when they built their nuclear weapons, uh, Pakistan, because of their conflict with India, and India had nuclear weapons, so they felt they had to have them. So I think that, you know, the, the, if Iran sees that there's no advantage to building a weapon, then they wouldn't. They, they certainly haven't shown any territorial ambitions to go and invade another country, such as Iraq did under Saddam Hussein. So uh, there's no reason to believe at this point that if they, if they see the benefits, if they, they enjoy the benefits of, of being a uh, respected member of the world community, um, integrated with the West, with economic uh, benefits that go along with that, with American companies doing business in Iran, um, why would they risk that all by building a nuke that they can't even use? What about uh, Israel? Israel, uh, uh, probably not on the street, certainly the government, very nervous yes. about the prospect of uh, I- Iranians uh, getting nuclear weapons. Uh, and there has been some some rhetoric from government yes. officials. Uh, President uh, um, I'm blocking on his name now. Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what do, you, do you think Iran would, would attack uh, Israel? How worried should they be? No, I don't think Iran would attack Israel. I don't think that uh, that's in the, in the cards at all. I mean, certainly not with a nuclear weapon. Um, uh, they haven't attacked Israel openly, um, militarily. Uh, some would argue that through Hezbollah they have. Um, but uh, they haven't attacked, and Hezbollah was created as a, as a, as a, during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. But anyway, that's, a, that's another story. The point is, um, what would be the purpose? They've actually said that they would not, uh, even though Ahmadinejad did say on occasion that, uh, that uh, Israel would disappear, um, that regime will disappear. Um, he also said, and the Supreme Leader has said, that the Iran would never do anything about it, would never um, uh, attack another country, including Israel. So I don't think, uh, why would they attack Israel? What would be the point? If they, if they, launch a nu- if they had a nuclear weapon and launched it against Israel, uh, Israel would have, has a second strike capability and Iran would be over. It would be finished. Um, Tehran would be wiped out and the regime would be wiped out. And as I said, they're not suicidal. Plus, if you drop a nuclear weapon on, on Israel, you're going to kill a hell of a lot of Palestinians who you were uh, claiming to be supporting. So I don't think that's a realistic thing. I think what Israel's concern is, that Israel and Iran sit on opposite sides of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They sit on opposite sides of geopolitical issues concerning the Middle East. And Israel is a much stronger militarily and technologically country than Iran. If Iran gets to the point where it's on, it ha- achieves a certain amount of parity with Israel, Iran's influence grows. And so be a country that is on, their op- is on the opposite side, an enemy country, achieving parity is something that is of great concern, um, in the same way that it was of great concern for us when China... Uh, went nuclear, because we didn't want to see a country such as China back then achieve a military parity with us. They didn't, it's not so much a military parity in terms of military strength, but once you have nuclear weapons, you become immune to attack, basically, essentially immune to, to military attack. And so it, it would expand Iran's power. Iran would be a much, much more powerful country in the Middle East. It would, it would overshadow all the uh, Sunni Arab Gulf states and Saudi Arabia in terms of its might, uh, or at least the perceived might that it would have. And uh, that's not something that Israel wants to, wants to tolerate at this point. We're talking with uh, Iranian-American uh, writer Human Majd, um, whose latest book is the result of a year in Iran. He'd been born in Iran, but had lived abroad for, uh, for most of his life. He wanted to go back, um, experience life in Iran, 
And he took his American wife and their uh, infant son, Kash. They went back to Iran. The subtitle is An American Family in Iran. The title, The Ministry of Guidance Invites You to Not Stay. And uh, we're going to ask Humad Maj to take us into Persian culture. Very interesting passages in the book. Uh, a song which he says is emblematic, Life is Shameful. And Big Sulks, uh, that's an interesting look into uh, Persian culture and this obsession with children. We'll talk much more about this with Human Maj following break. Utah Public Radio welcomes listeners in Price, where UPR can now be heard at 89.7 FM. My name is Joe Peterson. I'm the chancellor at Utah State University Eastern. I want to say how delightful it is to turn on the radio and listen to UPR here in Carbon County. It's wonderful to have that in our community. Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences and the Department of Journalism and Communication. On the next On Being, deromanticizing the civil rights movement and rediscovering its humanity. Pacifism was not about neutrality while injustice was around you, but it was about finding the courage to respond in love. I can never give up on the idea that we the people can organize and bring change because we did it. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday evenings at 8. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering lunch items including a three-cheese panini with rosemary, orange chutney, and cranberry jalapeno chicken salad. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going inside Iran on the program today. The last segment we've uh, talked about uh, nuclear uh, weapons, nuclear program in Iran, U.S.-Iranian relations, and uh, prospects for those, some some of the politics. In this segment, I'd like to get into uh, some culture. And that's one reason why Human Majd, who is uh, Iranian-American, um, and lived uh, for most of his life in embassy postings. His uh, father was a diplomat for the uh, Shah, the government of the Shah. He's a grandson of an Ayatollah, by the way. Uh, he wanted to go back to Iran, live. So 2011, he took his uh, blonde, blue-eyed Midwestern wife, Carrie, their infant son, Kash, from their book, The Neighborhood. They spent a year in the land of his birth. The result is an interesting book, The Ministry of Guidance Invites You to Not Stay, an American Family in Iran. If you'd like to join the conversation with your question or comment, love it if you would. Uh, the phone number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Or you can join us on Facebook. Uh, Bennett Purser has posted here. Um, he says, here's an interesting uh, recollection of an American blogger's visit to Iran, complete with many pictures and personal stories from Iranian citizens. His work also sheds light on the country and its people. This is from uh, humansofnewyork.com. And this is their description. The U.S. government has a lengthy travel warning for Iran. While not advising you to ignore this warning, I do advise that you balance it with direct accounts of Americans who have recently visited the country. These accounts are generally filled with superlatives. Country is beautiful, etc., etc. Who and Maj, would, would you agree with that characterization? Oh yes, I mean it's 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 actually amazing that uh, every American friend of mine who's ever been journalist friend or or writer friend or 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 even non just tourist who I've met 
Um, they all say the same thing about Iran, that it's absolutely not what they expected. Um, it's a very friendly country. It's not anti-American at all, at least the population, not at all. In fact, they, uh, they're at pains to say how much they love America and how much they love Americans. So um, it's, uh, it's just not what one expects if you, if you go to Iran. Um, yes, the government rhetoric tends to be anti-American, but it also should be remembered that many of those government officials have kids in American universities or kids who've gone to American universities. Some, in many cases, the government officials themselves attended American universities. Uh, the current foreign minister in Iran spent more, uh, I think, more years um, in America than he had as in Iran. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, uh, he was educated here at university all the way through his doctorate and then was the uh, uh, Iranian ambassador to the UN for many years. So he's lived in America for many, many years. They know America. Um, and uh, they, they're also at pains to say that they're not against, they're not anti-American, they're anti the American government policies towards Iran and toward the region. Yeah, Utah State University, where we are here, uh, hosts a fair number of Iranian students, I think, through the years. Yes, um, yes. I remember in the, the 80s, that'll give my age, I'm, I'm similar age to you, um, uh-huh. the, the, during the war between Iran and Iraq, we had uh, students here from each of those nations. And uh, I think there was, uh, you know, generally it was good relations between the students, but it, it had to strain strain things a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, the that was a very sad. sad the the yeah. Iraq War was a, it was not a good thing by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the, and I imagine you you know you still have echoes from that war as you talk to some people. Oh, absolutely! I think you know every every Iranian that you talk to knows someone who died in that war. Um, it was a while ago. It was in the eighties, but still, um, you know, people if they're young, they had uncles who may have died or at least served. Everybody uh, you come across knows someone who either served in the war on the front lines um, or, or, or was injured in the war or died in the war. Um, it was a hugely traumatic uh, event for Iran. This was, uh, Tehran was you know, being bombarded by scuds. There were missiles going off um, in, in the capital city. People evacuated the city. You know, there were bread lines. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was, and, and the people who today are at the head of the uh, government uh, all served um, in the war. Almost all of them served during the war mm. and experienced that war. And there's a certain amount of bitterness that the entire world was against Iran on, on Saddam's side, including the U.S. Uh, and no one um, was, was on Iran's side, except mm. for Syria. One of the reasons they support Syria so strongly is the only country that supported them during the uh, during the um, Iran Iraq War. Hmm. We have uh, oh maybe eight minutes left in the program. A lot I'd like to dive into uh, to Persian and Iranian culture, um, and I'm quoting well quoting a song here. Uh, you you quote the lyrics to a song. You don't know you don't know how life can be shameful. And you say those mm-hmm. are lyrics from a song uh, from the classical Iranian form written by playwright uh, Bijan Mofid in the early seventies. You say that. Uh, you often think of that song when you're thinking about Iran and Iranians. Uh, why? Well, it's a it's a little bit of the, uh, the the martyr complex that Iranians do have, which can be very frustrating in terms of dealing with Iran um, on political issues. Uh, and the martyr complex comes from this, uh, to some degree, from the Shia uh, culture of Iran. But uh, it's 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 about this, this the idea, and it's been in Persian poetry for for thousands of years and poetry is in Iran the, the highest form of uh, highest form of uh, literature um, and Iranians all love to quote poetry and it's been in in the poetry that the, you know that the, the, the 
life and life on this planet is not um, is not good. Uh, it's shameful. It's uh, there's something just wrong. There there is no good, um, and, uh, and and we just live. We live our lives and we do our best. But uh, um, there's a very pessimistic view on life and the human condition, I should say, um, and that that is reflected in the culture um, largely, uh, both in, in in Shia culture and and in purely Persian culture. In another chapter, in fact, you have a whole chapter on the big sulk. I found this yeah. very interesting. And you, you quote, sulk, sulk, until the end of reckoning sulk. I'm not sure what you're uh, quoting there. Yeah. And you say, and boy, do Iranians know how to sulk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sulking is a high art. What Explain this. Well, it's just part of the, again, the Iranian uh, cultural uh, personality, the cultural personality of Iranians, uh, is that when they don't get their way, they, one of the things they do is sulk. And, and sulking is, 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 a, is a form um, that's used both in, in personal relations and even in political relations uh, of trying to um, get your way or trying to get a point across, something that we consider perhaps a little childish in the West, but is not considered childish. It's considered an art form, how you sulk and how you, get, um, uh, how you present yourself. And this has been something that's been in our culture for a long time, political culture as well as our, our personal culture. And there, and, and there are examples of it. Clearly, Ahmadinejad sulked in, in 2011 while I was there. And, uh, but prior to that, we had Mossadegh in 1953 sulking when he couldn't get his way um, and uh, you know, retreating to his bedroom and putting his pajamas on saying, I'm not going to go to work, and asking to be begged, basically, um, to come back to work, <laughs> come back and, 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 and do the right thing. So I think it's just part of uh, it's just something that is interesting in terms of the, the Iranian culture, something that we would view as being you know, silly and childish. Why are you sulking? Just get on with life. Just move on. Um, and yet that's something that's very much a part of the culture and, and happens within families, it happens in personal relationships, uh, sulks go on for generations even, um, but years and years, even among brothers and sisters, um, but also on the political level, on the social, more uh, public level, you also see them, and they're not surprising to anybody. Um, it might be surprising to us, but they, you imagine President Obama not getting his way with Congress and just saying, well, you know, I'm going to Hawaii now. <laughs> Call me when you're when you want me back. Mm-hmm. It just would never happen. Um, but uh, we'd think he was being pathetic if he did that. But it's perfectly normal in Iran. Hmm. Uh, tell me about this. You you write that uh, Iranians Iranian culture has a, an odd obsession with children. Yeah, I, I don't think Iran's the only country that's like that. But yes, Iranians have a very 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 strong uh, um, connection to their to their kids and other people's kids. Um, it's a it's a very uh, child loving culture. Uh, you, you put the children above everything else, um, and uh, uh, it's uh, it can be shocking for a Westerner because it's it's perfectly normal for people on strangers on the street to come up to your child and want to kiss them and, and tell them how wonderful they are, how beautiful they are, give them a piece of candy. I mean, it's things that you know for my wife it's just shocking, but it became perfectly normal for her, and she understood was just something that. Uh, um, Something that was just part of the culture. Uh, it, it, it is. They are particularly uh, child-loving people. Hmm. Uh, you also write. I found this interesting. Um, that, you know, it's kind of a stereotype out there: Iranian man viewing himself as God's gift to women. Uh, you say there's some truth to that, and that's it's because of the way they're mothered. The way they're mothered. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Jewish mothers have nothing on Iranian mothers. Yes. <laughs> 
they, um, they, uh, Iranian mothers do tend to, I mean, there's always, it's always been a, a, a male-centric society uh, to some degree, even though Iranian women have a far greater role in public life and in private life and social life than uh, their counterparts in, in Arab countries. Um, they drive, they you know, work, they, go to bu- they have businesses, um, all, you know, they work as, even as, as deputy ministers, even as ministers. So um, they're different from other Islamic countries in that regard, but it is a male-centric country. So when a, a, a male child is born, I mean, both the mother and the father really treat them like uh, the princes uh, that uh, they then later on in life think they are. Um, so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a big generalization, but yes, Iranian men can, can definitely uh, have that sense because as children, they are, they're, they're just told how wonderful they are and how great they are. Um, and what a what a gift to humanity they are. What about Iranian women, in especially in reaction to this this view that some Iranian men have of themselves? Um, in, in in terms of what I mean, I, I'm sure Iranian yeah, I, I, women, you know, ma- many Iranian women uh, are, are 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 certainly a younger generation now, a less traditional generation are are, are probably uh, um, fed up with that that attitude that many yeah, Iranian men have. That's what I was yeah. suspecting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the older generation is like, well, that's just the way it is, you know, <laughs> and they they revere their their little boys. I'm guessing that you're you're probably viewed on both sides, Americans, Iranians, as sort of a bridge. And what do you? I'm interested in the reverse. What? How do you explain? I'm guessing you're asked to explain American culture to Iranians. Sometimes I am, yes. Um, uh, when I'm in Iran, certainly um, I, I'm asked questions. Sometimes I'm, I'm surprised at the naivete but, um, of, of the questioner, and sometimes I'm, I'm surprised at how much they do know about Iran, uh, about the U.S. But I think there's, you know, Iran, uh, the U.S. is a complicated country. I mean, just look at, you know, the most recent example. I mean, we're talking about um, Congress imposing new sanctions on Iran uh, after this interim deal has been agreed upon which is you know, in the news now because it potentially could derail the whole nuclear negotiations. Um, but you know, many in Iran don't understand that, you know, um, what a veto means, for example. Many in Iran would not understand that uh, when the media talks about a veto-proof majority in the Senate, um, it's actually not accurate, totally accurate. It's, it's more complex than that. A bill can be signed by a majority of the senators. It can go to uh, the president. The president can veto it, then it has to go back to the Senate, and the Senate can then override it with a second vote, which they also need a majority of the Senate, so they need 66 senators. Um, So it's not as simple as just a veto. If 66 senators sign the bill today, the sanctions will go into effect, which is what a lot of Iranians might assume right now. So it's, you know, our system of government is complicated, their system of government is complicated, our culture can be, uh, it's more open and more visible to them than their culture is to ours. Um, partly because everything that we do is out in the open. We have the internet, we have television, we have you know, we have uncensored television, uncensored newspapers, and we don't see that on the other side. Um, but the political system and the politics of America are, are far more complicated than than um, can be first uh, gleaned. And uh, yes, I am asked those questions often enough when I'm when I'm in Iran. We'll leave it there out of time. The book is very interesting. Uh, the Ministry of Guidance invites you to not stay in American family in Iran. The writer is Human Majd. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And for producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. 
Years ago, Jenny and I sat in an emergency room waiting for a doctor to attend her broken foot. A young blonde woman sat holding a limp, feverish toddler in her lap. Four other children under 10 huddled around her. All were clean and well-behaved. Their father was working at a part-time job. The family had lived in Utah all their lives. They had no regular doctor, no health insurance. The emergency room was their only source of medical care. They could barely afford food. The bill for Jenny's visit was a little over $1,000. It was paid by Medicare. The young family's bill would go unpaid. The cost spread over others using the hospital. Governor Herbert can give such people a much-needed present right now. Under the Affordable Care Act, parents and low-income adults under 65 with incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty line are eligible for Medicaid if their state accepts the full expansion. Utah can give about a third of its people holiday cheer simply by accepting what is authorized and available. The federal government pays 100% of their medical costs for three years. After three years, Utah will be expected to pay about 5% of the bill. Well, you can hold your nose if you must, but let's take that deal. I agree that the Affordable Care Act is not the best way of providing health care for everyone, but that's what Congress gave us and the Supreme Court upheld. It's the law of the land, and it's available right now. We can keep Utah's poor people from getting medical care by playing politics, or we can accept what other states will get and work toward improving or even repealing Obamacare. We should not let political ideology keep poor Utahns from benefiting from health care other states get. We can accept the Fed's offer to pay all costs of health care for the poor people of Utah for the next three years. During that time, the program may improve or the law may be repealed. While the debate continues, let us help poor people in Utah get health care for the first time in their lives. This is Thad Box. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1, 91.5 Logan. Now also heard on KCEU 89.7 in Price. It is now 10 o'clock.